0: Welcome to The Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom. And the hashtag, the virtual shift. Today, we have a very special guest on Paul Wilder, Executive Director of the Commonwealth Health Alliance. Paul, welcome to the program.
1: Oh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Awesome, Paul. So, Paul, we know each other uh, way back. Uh, I reached out to you to participate in this program uh, because of the recent announcement by the uh, Department of Health and Human Services ultimately identifying Commonwealth as the, one of the initial six to participate in the ONC's uh, Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreements to be a QHIN. So uh, congratulations on that, uh, that effort. Well, let's start first talking about Commonwealth. It was interesting to read. Commonwealth Health Alliance exchanges some 30 million documents weekly and serves more than 34,000 healthcare organizations carry, carrying carrying for 200 million people. That is a hell of a reach. Uh, when, when, we to, when we talk about not having interoperability in the United States, that's uh, quite a common uh, feat for what Commonwealth is doing. Thoughts?
1: Yeah, yeah, we are not small. Uh, so Commonwealth was founded March 2013, so just approaching our 10-year anniversary in a couple weeks, which is pretty amazing. And uh, it really, it's, it's like a, almost an offense defense, right? So if you go back then, there was meaningful use going on, there was a regulatory push towards uh, EHR adoption and defining what an EHR is. And around the edge, there was an interop discussion happening. And, and the defense part, it's not to, to hide what industry does, it was, hey, we think we can solve this problem uh, ahead of regulation, potentially not solving it the right way. And our customers are demanding it. That's the kind of the offense thing. So let' let's get together. And interestingly enough, it was a bunch of vendors kind of came to that conclusion, all having conversations together that said, you know, our customers do want this. Uh, we are we do have a gap, and we can build this right. And we do think it's not a single vendor solution right? There is an idea amongst competitors that of course you want to sell your product to every potential customer. But Interop is a sport where you have to recognize you're not going to win every customer. That you still need to connect to other stuff for the good of the entire industry, not just the HIT, the health information technology industry, but the healthcare industry, the providers, the payers, the, the people, the humans, the public health, uh, patients, whatever. You, you know, It all has to come together. It really shouldn't be a single vendor solution. So they came together and said, let's build Interop in our products and have an edge that we can connect to that allows us to interoperate. And, and the, the the closest equivalent I'll give, and I'll try and cut the story from getting too long, is Bluetooth, right? So you have these alliance members of the Bluetooth Alliance that establish a specification for how all these devices should connect to each other while they directly compete, right? So Samsung's got earbuds and earphones, and so does Apple, and so does Microsoft. And they're all members of this trade alliance to solve an edge problem of how do we make the specification that allows these devices to connect while we compete Um, form, function, and features of the devices themselves. And that's what we have here. We have a bunch of aggressive competitors in the room together agreeing that the edge of this needs to be common. That's common well. And we then serve up the difference between Bluetooth and us is we then serve up a hub in the center that maintains that specification and allows them to connect, knowing that they only have to connect to one thing. They connect to the hub. So we talk about 34,000, you know, clinical sites, you know, it's really probably about twenty to 28,000 legal entities, right? Because some are multiple site entities under IDNs and the like. But we only have, say, 30-some-odd connections to us, right? It, it fans out. So a lot of the work in Commonwealth is done by the members doing interop on their side. And we're helping with that final edge of locating data across entities, some of their own, some of their competitors, and getting data to flow. And that's how you get the scale.
0: Interesting. So uh, as we talked, I was on the original uh, scripts team when Commonwealth was founded. Uh, and that was at a HIMSS uh, conference that this announcement was made. And the founding members stated three primary points of beliefs. One, the, the patient's data should be available to patients and providers regardless of where or when care occurs. Two, provider should be able to access their data via a native health I- information technology product. And three, this ability should be embedded within the system at the reasonable cost to the provider, leveraging existing standards to the greatest extent possible. Where do you think yep. we are relative to those beliefs?
1: Yeah, I mean, the good news is that the forward thinking from 2013 applies today. Those general principles If you go back to what I I answered about kind of where we are and and what Commonwealth is, it still sticks, right? The general idea is most of Interop is in front of your screen, right, Is, is what you see in front of you. And that's going to be your primary productivity tools for clinical and administrative stuff in healthcare, which is your electronic health record. So a lot of the Interop is really there. What we are providing is the edge, right? So you take all these Cerner Sites and Meditech and Clinical Works, Athena, you know, go down the list of, of the large scale and smaller EHRs we have here. They can't connect to each other without some sort of mutual understanding of how that's going to work, both technically and from a policy perspective. So not only is there a technical specification, but there's a trust framework embedded in that, that I will connect my providers and you will help your providers get connected. And we agree to the principles of how that policy set works. I shall respond to data as long as you respond to data. The reciprocity is there. And so it's really been the same. The only thing that that we didn't do out of the gate, if you, the first principle was for providers and patients. And the patients parts came in in 2016, where we opened up our specification for consumer applications to plug into the network to collect data on behalf of an individual patient. So that's a, that's a bit lagging compared to where we are on the provider side. Most of that 30 million documents a week, and I say most is probably 99-point-something, is uh, provider-to-provider exchange. Uh, Other versions and use cases of patient access, payment operations are small in comparison, a fraction of a percent, Uh, but they're happening. We've had it up for a while, both of those, and things are moving along. So I don't think our principles have changed. I think the only difference that you're seeing is in the first one, it's providers and patients, and now you can add payers and student will add public health as well. Keep adding more P's until we get them all done.
0: Uh, You know, as well as I do, the interoperability challenge in the U.S. has been a topic of conversation for a long time. And because there doesn't seem to be that end game in in place, right? And I always used to say, uh, as you know, I was involved with the uh, the HISP and very much involved with with direct messaging and, and the whole challenge of exchanging data and all these different EHRs playing nice in the sandbox and and actually being i would say for the first time when we did the direct messaging as part of meaningful use too it was that we got onto a common definition of what a medical record was even though there were standards in the meaningful use you know not everybody did the, had the same interpretation uh, but interoperability in itself is still flawed in, in the context of how an EHR would match a record, right? It's based on a probabilistic matching algorithm, not a deterministic matching algorithm. So there's still a lot of flaws in that ecosystem in the context of if I do get data, how confident am I? It is all of uh, my record versus an improper matching of records that uh, originated at the source.
1: Yeah. So let me me talk a little bit on that because I think this is an important part of our trust framework. A lot of people don't Realize is part and parcel to the core. So, Commonwealth, first of all, I didn't mention is a 501c6, which is a tax exempt uh, nonprofit called a trade association. And one thing you have to think about trade associations is our job is never to compete with the market. We're kind of almost like a commercial version of a public good, right? There's some gap that the market can't serve for whatever reason that we believe collectively the market and the, the industry participants can solve together, but can't individually. And you hit the nail on the head, right? So if if you understand how health information exchanges work, like, and we don't consider ourselves one, and I can explain why, um, you know, one of the core technologies is an MPI, a Master Patient Index. And they do work on a probabilistic algorithm, and then they'll have staff at the HIE itself that work on the cues, the things that don't match perfectly and usually it's a score you take first name last name date of birth all this stuff you add up all these numbers and you come to a score of this patient and that patient are a 16.1 score of being the same thing it's like an arbitrary number and you say okay 16.4 is the number that we consider it the same and so it doesn't reach that threshold and it goes into a queue and it sits there forever right you have a 20 staff the h i just go into the queue the unique thing of commonwealth the the thing that makes us unique is that function is distributed throughout every endpoint in commonwealth any endpoint in commonwealth can look into that queue and say, my patient is not being matched. Now, my patient doesn't have records outside, that doesn't make sense because I know there, there's a lot of records available in Commonwealth, and I know my patient has been to other locations. Let me look at the near matches and let me adjudicate it, right? So I can talk to the patient who's in front of me and say, can you give me uh, some of the cities you used to live in? And they say, I used to live in Evanston. Ah, was it, what was the number of the street address on Main Street that you lived? 123 apartment C. This is you, right? So now on the screen in real time, every alliance end user underneath one of our members, so uh, you know, take an EHR, you know, EHR vendor, which is a member, the members are generally industry participants, and then below them are providers, hospitals, and clinics. Any clinic can call up an API within their EHR and do that linking on their own. And so it makes it easier if you're really interested in data to go find it versus relying on a technology in a Borg that you have no access to and have to hope it's doing its job well. That is the alliance's difference and why it's not a common off-the-shelf MPI. We could take a common off-the-shelf MPI at the core, but the APIs around it that allow the trust framework not just to exchange data, but to exchange patient matching criteria and patient matching adjudication is a big, big leap. Is it done? No. I think the main thing that that I say is, that we have work to do on, 35,000 sites here, 50,000, yeah, 15,000 more when you go over to care quality, sounds like a lot. But the reality is we're pretty top heavy. And we admit this, we admit this. We, we have you know eight of the, seven of the top 10 EHR companies in the country are on Commonwealth. Three of the others are in care quality. Like we have, and when you do 80-20 rules, those top 10 account for probably 90% of the EHR installs in the country. Actually, let's take that back. Not the EHR installs, but the EHR data. They tend to be larger practices. But there are a lot of smaller systems that are on homegrown EHRs or EHRs that aren't part of Commonwealth right now that are still left out there. If you look up ambulatory data, if you did a Google, Bing, whatever your favorite search engine is, and looked up the number of ambulatory sites in the country, you probably find a number between 205 and 225,000 sites. So if we have 50,000 represented, and there's probably 6,000 hospitals, and there's a bunch of SNFs and other, you know, skilled nursing and other facilities, we're still missing a lot of endpoints. And so the problem with Interop, one of the key problems, is it's hard to rely on data if you don't know how many holes there are in it. So we need to finish the job. Right now, it's almost like it's secondary advisory data. It's not to be relied upon because we're missing 75% of the endpoints. And the most critical piece of information could be hiding in one of those. So you yeah. still have to go through your H&P. You still have to go through all your administrative flows to, to get as much data you can out of the person because you're not sure if the, if the Borg is really giving you all that. We need to finish the job. That's kind of where we moved to Tefco, saying, how do we finish this job and how do we move this forward?
0: Yeah, and that's a great transition. And I didn't pay anything to do it either. So uh, so I wanted to uh, kind of move o- over to the um, HHS's uh, recognition of you being a uh, participant as a QHIN. So tell us a little bit more about uh, what this uh, effort is in the context of what you're already doing and what is a QHIN in context of TEFCA?
1: Yeah, so uh, first of all, just to get rid of some acronym soup, QHIN is Qualified Health Information Network and TEFCA, you already said, was a Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. So TEFCA, first you break that apart, is TEF, is the Trusted Exchange Framework, and then there's an agreement that goes along. So the QHINs are... Advanced networks, you know, something like a Commonwealth or, and our peers, that would be, for lack of a better term, a supernode on a framework of connected supernodes, right? So you imagine your know, telecom, you know, so you have an AT&T supernode and you have a Ryzen supernode and they're all allowed to register phone numbers and connect. You don't, you don't get a T-Mobile phone and only... You can only call T-Mobile people, right? You can call anybody because right. they're all part of a, a framework that connects with stuff. There's more centralization. There's more government intervention and, and registrations, all that stuff. So it's a little bit, a little bit different. That really industry is doing this with government as opposed to government with industry. It's just a little bit, a little bit different. But the general idea is the same: is that you have these super node networks that would be able to flow down terms of that common agreement. So the QIN signs an agreement that every other QIN the same exact contract. Which establishes a trust framework. And then that trust framework also links over to a technical specification of how we'll connect to each other. So we don't have to fight on the how, the how is defined. The how we do on the inside could be completely different, right? We could be, you know, the outside has a specification. The inside, we can be, we, we have to translate to the common spec, but it allows us to make this Commonwealth concept and other frameworks that exist at a higher level, right? We're taking Commonwealth from 35,000 sites and saying, pick a QHIN. Right, do you know to pick Commonwealth? We we would love you to. We think that we have our trust framework of the shared MPI. We think is a unique thing that makes Tefco work even better. And we will be the biggest super node on that network to start, and we'll probably maintain that for an extended period of time. But we welcome everybody to pick the QN that fits you the best, so that you're on the national framework, so that every piece of data is discoverable to you, and every piece of data and vice versa is also discoverable to everybody else. So you know, while the common mission of 2013 uh, still applies. And, you know, we could have done this without Tefco. Just as we recognize a single vendor can't be the dominant EHR for everybody, we also understand that one network and one solution to convene them all is probably not going to work either. And so we're excited to have other QHINs that are going to do the same work we're doing with their kinds of constituents, which could be different. They may not be EHRs, they could be consumer applications. It could be payers. It could be a single vendor for all their customers. And we all could come together at the center to make true nationwide, no stone unturned interrupt work. And then we could work on the rest of the challenges of interrupt, right? You have to to lay the pipes to be able to talk about data quality and normalization, all the stuff we want to do next.
0: Well, one of the things that comes out in TEFCA, and it's only because of my own background, as you know, I've been on stage talking about patient identity which is the reason why I brought up that probabilistic matching uh, algorithm earlier. Uh, you know, TEFCA requires that all patients be identified and authenticated. And to me, this is kind of the, the tipping point or the, the transition point of moving from that uh, probabilistic matching to uh, deterministic matching. Because once I've identified and authenticated that patient, I can now create a unique identifier for that patient. It is this person as opposed to another Tom Foley but but the point is is that to me it starts to change the dynamics in the confidence of the data uh, and ultimately becomes a more ne- a common necessity to yeah. ultimately achieve wellness.
1: Your thoughts on that? Well uh, first of all, Commonwealth not only doesn't have an issue with a national identifier and strongly encourage a national identifier right the, the, the uniqueness of our MPI, management of distributing it throughout our trust framework is great, but we have no issue with there being, you know, a thing that makes that easier, right? We are spending a fair amount of time, effort, and, you know, convening time on how to operate that thing in a trust framework, right? It, it would be easier if there was a national identifier. What would then happen is we'd look down to what's called record location. Even having a national identifier doesn't help with the next part of the trust framework and uniqueness, which is where is the data? Because I can have a national identifier. Let's say I use my, my driver's license everywhere as an identifier, which is a pretty strong ID, right? My New Jersey number is unique. And So, secure number we know is not completely unique, but close. But let's say we every provider I went to, they actually typed in my 15 digit New Jersey driver's license number. That would be a pretty strong identifier that wouldn't even need a national ID. Now, when I move, there'd be a problem, right? When I go to Illinois and I get an Illinois license, I'd have to somehow link my New Jersey ID and my Illinois ID um, and kind of keep perpetuating that until all my stuff's linked again, and that, that could take some time. But even if I did that, and I, let's say I went to every provider I saw was in New Jersey, I still don't know which New Jersey providers I went to unless I asked them all. So what record location does is allows them to broadcast or I guess really unicast directly to Commonwealth. I have this Paul Wilder. So that when I show up at another practice and they say, find me data for Paul Wilder, we don't have to make a phone call to every provider in New Jersey or a digital phone call. We just make it to Commonwealth. Commonwealth says, here are the five sites. I already know Paul Wilder exists at." So there's this perception that a national identifier is a nirvana. It is on the patient's security and ability to say this person is really who they say they are across entities. It doesn't necessarily help us find the entities unless we're gonna stand up a centralized record location system at a national level. And I think TEFCA has a record location concept in it where every QHIN is responsible for record location within their world. That with a national identifier is powerful, right? Because then all I have to do is use that national identifier across QHINs and say, here's this this ID, this national ID, where do you have people that have this ID? And so I, you know, there's six QHINs right now that are approved to continue. If it stayed there, I only have to make five five questions instead of two hundred and ten thousand questions. I say five. Hey, where do you know this person as? I get five responses back, and I already have an index of my stuff, so it'd be pretty efficient. Uh, so I, I strongly encourage us to figure that out. But we know that that's that's embroiled in.
0: I'll move off this point because there's other things we want to talk about. But I will say that you know, as part of meaningful use stage two, uh, direct messaging had to be incorporated, and as part of uh, exchanging patient data. Uh, there was a uh, patient identification and authentication requirement in that specification. The point there being is this is where the EHRs, in my view, dropped the ball in creating that unique identifier, but they stuck with the um, probabilistic matching algorithm and and perpetuated a problem. That's just my own I know that comes across a bit negative, but you know uh, it's it's not as if the EHRs have been the most innovative in the world. So at the end of the day, Trust in the data is paramount, and I do agree with you that it needs to be, this data needs to start to flow as a ubiquitous tool. So a CVS, if I go to CVS Minute Clinic, or if I go to an urgent care telehealth uh, appointment, right, I should be able to ping that national database as opposed to not knowing anything about this patient, but he's telling me he or she's got a sore throat, I'm just going to prescribe antibiotics, right? Right. But if right. I knew that they were at the other uh, Walgreens or at uh, Walmart, uh, I could better understand who this patient is and what their what their health conditions are. So wellness is part of the solution and not uh, a continued challenge, right? That's uh, absolutely correct. Yeah. So, I, so this is where um, I'm actually very anxious, and I'm not on meds for this, but I'm very anxious <laughs> to see the value uh, of the payers starting to come into the equation. Because uh, uh, my view is that not one health system, therefore not one EHR, knows everything about me. I, as you know, I come from New Jersey, so I can go to New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia for healthcare. Right? It's all within an hour's ride, a train ride. Yep. Right? So the point there being is the only person that really knows about me is the payer, and for them to be a participant in this process, I think is awesome. Thoughts
1: yeah. On that? Well, I, I, well, first of all. Your current payer knows about your current stuff, but payers change too, right? You know, it, yeah. It, and and the more the less and less that there's loyalty between uh, commerce and the people that work for them, uh, and the more competition there is for payers. Like you could stay at the same company, and they can change payers based on changing from Aetna having a better deal than United versus the Blue or whatever it is. So you know you don't think about your payer strategy when you're doing your cafeteria plan selection every year for your insurance in terms of your data liquidity on the other side. Like, that's not a normal thing to think about. You're not supposed to. Yeah. Like You're just a normal yeah. human being. So you may not realize, yes, that you fractured your own record, even on the payer side. So you need the payers to do the same thing that providers are doing uh, to share data across each other. You know, what, what you're getting at is the concept of filling health gaps, right? It, you don't know the gaps unless you have other tools to figure out where the gaps are. And you can use things like, you know, medication data to give a, an insight into that, right? If you have a link to SureScripts or Dr. First or whatever it is, and you get a medication history. The medication history is a history that helps inform likely clinical things, right? It's not perfect, but yeah, if someone's got a prescription for insulin, probably diabetic, or at least you can ask them, why they're taking insulin and confirm that they're a diabetic without ever ever seeing a piece of clinical data saying so. And so payers may not have all your clinical data, but they know the claims and procedures that went along with that. And those procedures tend to so they all help with filling the gap. And I don't I don't think we can rely on the payer because of the changing way you know change employer you change payers. Uh, but they should participate in the same framework so that that gap doesn't become a problem too. You need both. Like yeah. you need you need medication data, you need provider clinical data, you need claims and location data to really paint a full picture of your health.
0: Yeah, but payers are starting to step in front of their own provider network and provide telehealth services directly and provide remote patient monitoring and chronic care management services. So the data, uh, them being a health provider versus an insurer, that dynamic has to play into the overall schema. So we only have uh, about a minute left. So tell us a little bit about what's going to happen over the next year with Commonwealth and standing up to QN and uh, and what we should expect in twenty twenty four,
1: yeah, the the TEFCA bill is going to take a little bit of time. It's not an overnight process. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, frank though. The specification for TEFCA isn't that far different from things we're doing already. So, right, the good news is it's not a big leap technically. It's just that we are operating a network that moves thirty to forty million records a week with two hundred million people and thirty five thousand connected sites. So, you know, we also have to maintain that thing working while we're building the the small changes to our specification to make this work. So, you know, we're expecting uh, almost like a hacking exercise, right? The the Q-ins have to come together to make sure that the spec actually works, what was defined under Tefco, adjust as necessary, very similar to what we do at Commonwealth, and then stand this thing up. And that's probably a six to nine month process to get, you know, two or three really working in earnest. And then it's convincing the providers to accept the terms and conditions of Tefco. And uh, care quality, which is a framework we connect to today, you know, has a history here of how long that takes. And over there, it took a couple of years. So you know, it, yeah. it takes a little while to tell a provider I have a brand new thing that's better than what you have now, and you should sign up. I think uh, Dr. Blumenthal was the director of the ONC uh, back in the day, right before Farzad, and uh, he was—he was famous to me. He, he mentioned something about HIT adoption and said, "Well, it took seventy some odd years for healthcare to adopt the stethoscope. So why do you think this is going to happen overnight?" So uh, you know, it's going to take a little bit of time, but I, I think this is like a three year turn where we go from what we're doing today to moving all the stuff over. And in the meantime, adding a lot more stuff at the same time. Right? So we have to be, be careful. We're not just converting over to something. We're converting to have a better destination for everybody. And uh, yeah, that's a multi-year effort. But the next year is going to be building that really the next six to nine months, building it and then starting to move things over and doing guy in earnest.
0: Well, I'm really excited for Commonwealth. Uh, um, it's exciting to see where, where it is today uh, versus where it was uh, when, when we started 10 years ago. Uh, to me, this is mission critical for a transformed health system. Uh, people may not see it that way, but uh, data, my data and my access to my data to move towards wellness is, is, is absolutely critical.
1: I know uh, we have to out, but I just want to add one thing for your listeners, just to, so they're aware. While we talk of six QNs being approved, we're actually pr- approved to continue forward to get designated. So one thing that 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 should add some comfort to TEFCA is every QN has not been tested yet as being able to go to production. They've just been tested so far on whether they have the history and experience to continue forward. We still have to pass connectivity testing and all that. So. By the time the humans are designated, that's that nine-month range that that I keep mentioning, we'll have gone through a lot to make sure that we have the security, privacy, technical, policy, contracts, everything in place to make this work at scale. Um, And then we're all designated and we run. But this this public-private partnership, it really is the commercial, the industry coming together with government to make sure that the framework of the future is something that can be relied upon and trusted across many stakeholders within healthcare and as you mentioned like adding it to payers as well. This this is a big leap in that in that respect.
0: Awesome. we'll have to leave it there Paul. Great conversation. Appreciate you taking the time to uh, to join us. I wish you nothing but uh, success. Have a great day. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I want to thank the show sponsors. HP, HP Engage long lifecycle products provides the stability, safety and security you need plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow as well. Genie MD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern, throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Foley Tom and follow the show's hashtag, the virtual ship. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next ship.